For Toomey, nothing is ever quite finished. It can always be evolved. Introducing the latest evolution of Toomey, the aluminum backpack and briefcase from the 19-degree aluminum collection. Toomey reimagined these everyday essentials in aircraft-grade aluminum with contours sculpted at precise 19-degree angles. Carry the aluminum backpack and briefcase from Toomey to perfect journeys near or far. Shop Toomey's full 19-degree aluminum in stores and online at toomey.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression, the podcast from the Wall Street Journal with me, Jerry Baker. This is our inaugural edition and I'm joined, I'm very happy and privileged to be joined this week for our first edition by Condoleezza Rice, of course, who was former Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration, before that National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush, now is President of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, a return to academia for her. Condoleezza Rice has been one of the foremost experts on the Soviet Union and then Russia. And so the conversation that we're having, and I should say we're having this conversation Monday afternoon, the 14th of February. Things are moving very fast in that part of the world, but uh, I want to ask Secretary Rice what she thinks about the larger strategic challenge that Russia is posing. So, Secretary Rice, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let me start, obviously, with this. As I said, you spent a lot of your career studying Russia, researching Russia, and then dealing with Russia as an official in the George H.W. Bush administration, and then, of course, as I said, as a senior official in the George W. Bush administration. So you've met Vladimir Putin many, many times. You know that famous riddle in a mystery wrapped inside an enigma or whatever it was that Winston Churchill, however else Winston Churchill described it as. As we sit here now, um, we're still very unclear about what exactly is going to happen uh, on the border between Russia and Ukraine right now. And things could happen very quickly in the next few hours hours and days. But I wanted to ask you, first of all, Secretary, what's your sense, given what you know about Russia, what is Putin's strategic objective here? What does he really want? Yes, well, I think that his strategic objective, and it really has been a strategic objective for some time, is to reassert Russian authority over what was the former Soviet Union and as far east as uh, that can go. He was one who believed that uh, the end of the Cold War and the way that it ended was a humiliation to the Russian nation, to the Russian people. Uh, He's a sort of self-appointed person to uh, right that wrong in his own thinking. And he's really uh, systematically, over the last um, decade and a half of so, tried to assert that those who lived within uh, the Russian sphere, first the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union, essentially don't have a right to self-determination. They have to be a part of the Soviet or Russian bloc. And uh, that led, for instance, to uh, the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Uh, It's led to uh, unrelenting pressure on Ukraine, of course, the annexation of Crimea. And so this is a geostrategic view that sees uh, Russia as returning to its primacy uh, in uh, the areas that uh, it once uh, occupied and at least influenced. So is there any common ground there? Is there anywhere at all that we can accommodate you know, some of Putin's aspirations, maybe assuage some of his fears? Or given what you've just described there, that he really wants essentially to kind of rebuild the, at least in, in geostrategic terms, the influence of Russia that it had in the Soviet Union and presumably also in much of Eastern Europe, are we just at an irreconcilable moment? Well, I do think that our vision of Europe and his vision of Europe are pretty irreconcilable at this point. For instance, the only way that he rebuilds that level of influence is to make certain that there is no further movement 
of uh, Ukraine, for instance, toward the West. And our view is, and I think this is the correct view, and it's certainly the view of the Biden administration, that countries have a right to choose their own uh, alliances, to choose their own friends. Uh, if Ukraine uh, wants to move to closer relationship with European Union, with NATO, that should be the case. Now, to be very clear, I don't think that membership in NATO for Ukraine has been on the table for a very long time. But NATO has an open door policy, which says that we would never declare that Ukraine could never be a member of NATO. That's essentially what Russia wants to hear. But more importantly, he wants to roll back some of the expansion of NATO, which is why he talks about moving forces back from places like Poland and the Baltic states. So these are fairly irreconcilable views. It doesn't mean that there has to be war tomorrow. We will see. But uh, the view of Europe where Russia reasserts its authority, its block, its sphere of influence in the old balance of power terms, and a view uh, which is the Western view that this needs to be an open European system, those are irreconcilable. The sad thing is administrations going all the way back to the administration of President Clinton have really tried to bring Russia into an open Europe. It seemed like that's what Gorbachev was talking about or Yeltsin was talking about. But uh, Putin has really rejected that notion of an open Europe uh, because he sees it in blocks. He sees it in spheres of influence. Do you think there's any plausible scenario, given what you just said about Ukraine and NATO membership, is there any plausible scenario in, say, the next 10, 20 years where you could see Ukraine actually being a member of NATO? It's hard to imagine that you would see that movement to actual membership in NATO. Uh, you may remember that in 2008, the Bush administration really advocated for what was called Membership Action Plan, which is a sort of roadmap, if you will, to eventually get ready for NATO membership, because there are a lot of requirements for NATO membership that uh, Ukraine would not currently meet. And since NATO operates by consensus, it's hard to imagine that every member of NATO would want to see a Ukraine, particularly a divided Ukraine, as a member of NATO. But the principle is important here. And that is that you don't forestall that possibility by some kind of deal, Yalta-like deal, with the Russians. You uh, leave open that possibility. Ukraine is a functioning democracy, becoming more democratic and more stable. And by the way, I think one thing that bothers Putin is that despite the fact that he halved off Crimea, annexed Crimea, has caused untenable problems in eastern Ukraine, has really made a mess of the area around the Donbass with his separatist movements and the like. Despite all of that, Ukraine has managed to prosper. It's uh, it's had growth in the 3% or so uh, range, uh, economic growth. It has continued to uh, move closer to the European Union. Its president has managed to gain some modicum of popularity. People do talk about a Ukraine that is becoming less corrupt. And so part of Putin's frustration is, despite everything he's done, Ukraine is actually prospering. Obviously, part of what's clear um, in terms of the way the Biden administration has been handling this, and I, I want to get your further thoughts on what the Biden administration's approach has been. But, but one problem that Biden has had is a problem you're very familiar with, which is differences within the alliance over how to handle this. And it's very clear, it has been very clear for a very long time, that some of the major members of NATO, Germany in particular, Germany is not a significant military member of NATO, but it's obviously a very powerful economic uh, member. Germany, some of the other countries, are extremely reluctant to do anything that jeopardizes their economic 
security. They're heavily dependent, as we know, on um, on energy from Russia uh, and to some extent from to a lesser extent from Ukraine. And they have really, I think it's fair to say, dragged their feet and given every indication that they're not prepared to take the kind of measures that might possibly deter a military attack. And I think we could also, by the way, should include maybe even Britain in this. Britain could do a lot more in terms of going after the Russian oligarchs who like to have their fancy houses in Mayfair in London and launder all their money through London. I mean, how much do you think that that can change? Or is that a fatal flaw here as we try to deal with Russia, that the Europeans, in other words, the ones who are most who are, who are in that neighborhood, who are literally living in that neighborhood, seem to be very, very reticent about really tough measures that could actually deter or at least punish Vladimir Putin if he does this. I would give the Biden administration credit for what I think is a, has been a mid-course adjustment for just the reasons that you have been uh, talking about. Early on, uh, there was a lot of talk about crippling economic sanctions. There were even people floating the idea that perhaps we would sanction the Russian central bank, take the Russians off the SWIFT uh, system so that they couldn't engage in dollar-denominated transactions. Uh, There was talk about potential sectoral sanctions uh, against oil and gas. And uh, that was going to go nowhere because, as you have noted, the Europeans have really, particularly the Germans, have put themselves in a very vulnerable position in terms of uh, dependence on uh, Russian uh, natural gas in particular. It is, by the way, an object warning for why it is really important, as much as we want to to do something about hydrocarbons, it's an object warning of why you don't do this prematurely in the transition to a different energy future and leave all of the oil cards in the hands of Vladimir Putin and the Russians. I was secretary when oil went to $147 a barrel and that gave Putin all kinds of ability to threaten uh, Eastern Europe and they're even more now, the Germans, dependent on the Russians. There's of course the Nord Stream pipeline So this energy dependence and the fear of what would happen to energy markets, not to mention what would happen, for instance, the price of gas in uh, Ohio, probably made some of those threats less than credible. And what the administration did was to subtly shift uh, to what I'll call a more reinforcement and deterrence strategy uh, by moving forces, including uh, alert American forces into places like Poland and the Baltic states, arming the Ukrainians, I think belatedly, um, I think we should have armed them uh, much more aggressively and frankly with more uh, sophisticated offensive weaponry, but give them credit for that subtle shift. And now Putin finds himself in a kind of strange dilemma. He keeps saying that he wants to push NATO back west and away from Russian territory, and really all he's done is cause the reinforcement of NATO. And that was something that I think the Allies were much more capable of getting behind than economic sanctions. I don't think we can rule out economic sanctions if, in fact, Putin does move with those forces. But uh, this seems to me to have at least been a strategy that has united the alliance rather than dividing it. You praise the administration there a little bit for, for, for as you say, subtle shifts uh, in its position. But is, is, do, you, do you think the wider problem perhaps with the administration is that maybe Vladimir Putin has observed events around the world in the last year, has particularly observed the but I think generally agrees is messy, minimum, chaotic, perhaps even disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. The apparent lack of willingness of the United States, it seems to, to bear the burdens of some of those 
obligations, if you like, or some of those global obligations that it once had. And, you know, perhaps also looked at some of the back and forth over what to do about China and maybe about the Iran and JCPOA and, does it, and detects weakness and detects a president and an administration that in the end, because of its focus on domestic politics, perhaps because of its focus on China, it's just not really prepared to put its shoulder to the wheel and make the kind of sacrifices that might be necessary. And he just thinks this is an opportunity for him. Oh, I think there's no doubt that Afghanistan is the dominant uh, metaphor here in some ways for for Vladimir Putin, or analogy rather, that uh, if we weren't going to... stay uh, put and stick it out in Afghanistan, which after all was the site of the attack on the actual territory of the United States, uh, then why would we do anything to support or defend uh, Ukraine? And and I have to say, I suspect that Xi Jinping is uh, also reading the tea leaves about this crisis in Ukraine to see just how tough the Biden administration can be. But it may be that Putin underestimated a little bit the degree to which NATO would hang together, particularly on the more on the military side than on the economic side. And uh, after, I think, a a very shaky start, I do think the administration's begun to get its footing here. Uh, The president made that one gaffe in the press conference, and it's just a reason you don't stand for an hour and 49 minutes with members of the press. You're going to make mistakes sooner or later, and he did when he talked about, well, if it's something more limited. But after uh, some stumbles, I do think Putin may be a little surprised at uh, how quickly we've done things like move forces. Now, I probably would not have taken the military option off the table in quite the way that they did. Nobody really believes that the United States is going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. But there are things that we could do militarily. And um, for instance, is that short of short of outright deployment? Short, short of, exactly. We used, for instance, destroyers in the Black Sea area during the Georgia event. So there are things that you can do. So it was a rocky start. I do think Putin believed that Afghanistan was the dominant narrative about the administration. Unfortunately, credibility is not uh, divisible. You can't be credible on Ukraine and not have been credible in uh, Afghanistan. But I do think that Putin may be a little surprised by how much this has started to come together. Again, I stress we're talking here Monday afternoon, US time, uh, late Monday night in Ukraine, early Tuesday morning. Um, so we and things are moving, and by the time people hear this podcast, this, things may have moved on. But as we stand, uh, Madam Secretary, do you think that Putin could? He's amassed hundred thousand plus forces uh, on the border. He's made all kinds of maximum demands of NATO and of the United States. Could he really now step back from um, some any sort of military action without significantly losing face and losing really important battle in his larger strategic objective? Oh, I think it would be very hard now for him to simply do nothing at this point, um, because uh, they they keep saying though I saw just a few minutes ago Lavrov saying, well. Uh, Diplomacy's, you know, not dead yet. There's, there's plenty of room for diplomacy. He may still be hoping for a cheap victory that he could get the Ukrainians to say something about Ukraine voluntarily, never wanting to be a member of NATO or something like that. That would have real cost for Zelensky at home, I think. And uh, from Putin's point of view, nothing better than to get that concession and have Zelensky weakened at home. But uh, if he doesn't get something, then the options, uh, the military option, I think at some point he has to exercise some portion of it. Now, it doesn't mean that he has to launch an all-out invasion of Ukraine. In fact, I think 
that kind of massive uh, invasion from the from Belarus uh, on one side, from eastern Ukraine with air power and the like, that would be pretty hard to pull off. And the further west you get, the Ukrainians will fight more and more. But he has options in eastern Ukraine. That's already an area in which uh, Russian paramilitaries operate, in which Russian special forces operate, in which cyber attacks are possible. Uh, in which one could hive off parts of eastern Ukraine, perhaps even as far as the Dnieper River. So I think there are options short of uh, let's make our way to Kyiv, that if he doesn't get some concession diplomatically, uh, he's probably going to have to exercise. And, and by the way, they're laying the groundwork, they're laying the pretext by saying that they fear for the lives of Russians in uh, the Donbass region and eastern Ukraine by moving their own embassy personnel out of Ukraine because the things that we, the West, are doing threaten Russians. So they're setting up this pretext that they may have to defend Russian populations, perhaps by having some of the separatists in Donetsk or areas like that uh, declare their desire to join Russia and inviting Russian forces. So he has options short of the big invasion. He might also calculate that that would keep the West from reacting in the strongest possible ways. Uh, about that, I'm not sure he would be right. So how much of a risk is he taking here? I mean, everybody seems to think, obviously, Russia has enormous military capability, 150,000 troops dwarfs what uh, Ukraine can put in the field, and um, the Ukrainians are essentially on their own. And yet, if I may say so, you know, uh, we all have experience when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, everybody assumed, and indeed rightly, that the initial military offensive phase of the campaign would be relatively short and relatively easy. We then learnt, obviously, to our cost, just, uh, how, how challenging it can be to maintain any sort of um, uh, occupation. Are we somewhat underestimating the risks, the actual risks of military action, uh, if he does, if he does take it? Oh, I think there are risks. Uh, first of all, it, it's uh, Ukrainians, particularly the further west you go, they will fight. And, uh, you know, he doesn't need pictures of dead Russians. And so um, now there there is an option that I think has fewer risks, and it's a little bit the Georgia playbook, which is that if you can occupy separatist territory rather than pushing too far, then maybe you can stabilize the situation in an area like the Donbass. It doesn't have to be, by the way, declared Russian. It has to just be not Ukrainian. That becomes then an embarrassment for the government in uh, Kyiv. You continue to try to destabilize that government. I wouldn't be surprised, for instance, if there have been threats against Zelensky and his people that have been delivered quite uh, clearly about their own personal safety. So this could be a longer game for him if he decides to try to lower his risk of, uh, of a really massive military invasion. There's one other thing to say about all those forces that he's got on the border. Uh, he's going to run out of time as to when to move forces along the ground if that's what they decide to do, because in about six weeks or so, this is going to be mud. And as Hitler and Napoleon learned, uh, you don't really want to move military equipment under those circumstances. So I do think, though, there are risks for him. There, there are certainly risks. There are already risks in that he's huffed and puffed so far, and all he's gotten is a NATO response to move closer to Russia. Uh, that is something that I think he has to undo. We need to take a quick break there, but we'll be back with more with Condoleezza Rice after this. For Toomey, nothing is ever quite finished. It can always be evolved. 
Introducing the latest evolution of Tumi, the aluminum backpack and briefcase from the 19-degree aluminum collection. Tumi reimagined these everyday essentials in aircraft-grade aluminum with contour sculpted at precise 19-degree angles. Carry the aluminum backpack and briefcase from Tumi to perfect journeys near or far. Shop Tumi's full 19-degree aluminum in stores and online at Tumi.com. Welcome back to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker of the Wall Street Journal. I'm talking with Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State and former National Security Advisor, now President of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. What, why, why the final question on Russia? And I very briefly want to talk, talk about one other topic with you. But did we in the West, you were part of the George H.W. Bush administration. Um, famously, you know, you were associated with the famous speech that uh, that President Bush gave in Kiev, dubbed by some critics the Chicken Kiev speech, we remember, in which he gave a warning about nationalism uh, about and, and seemed to be sort of, um, to some extent, friendly to the, the Soviet Union was then obviously dis- integrating, but the kind of the line that those who wanted to keep maybe a sort of a looser form of Soviet Union together, but but more widely, and he got heavily criticized for it, for, for conservatives, for not being robust enough in defense of Ukrainian nationalism, in fact, for criticizing nationalism. Did we, though, after that, did we in the West maybe push Russia a bit too much? Did we humiliate them? Did NATO membership, pushing NATO membership, maybe not to the Baltics, but to, you know, Romania and Bulgaria, holding out the possibility of NATO membership to Ukraine. Given that the state, the sort of psychological state that Russia was in in the 1990s, its humiliation at the end of the Cold War, did we kind of rub salt in the wound there a bit too much? Did we handle that badly? Could we have actually had a more collaborative approach that wasn't quite as confrontational? Uh, Well, first of all, just to be clear, I, I had left the Bush administration by the time of that speech. And I actually, you know, George H.W. Bush was a great diplomat. I think that speech may have been misread by even the Russians. Uh, As to the post-Cold War era, I think every administration tried uh, to bring Russia in. I do not think anybody tried to humiliate them. You know, we tried everything. We tried the NATO-Russia Council. We tried uh, uh, bringing the Russians into the OSCE, into a reformed organization for security and cooperation in Europe. I think what really happened is that uh, when it became clear that the countries around uh, Russia, particularly Ukraine, uh, Georgia, a few others, actually wanted to be democracies and wanted to lean west. The Russians weren't willing to accept that ultimately. Vladimir Putin wasn't willing to accept that ultimately. But ask yourself the other question, would it have been aligned with our values to say, well, you'll just have to stay in the Russian sphere? I don't think that it would have been aligned with our values. And I think when you think about how far Ukraine has come, when you think of even more so what has happened in most of Eastern Europe, Hungary notwithstanding, you have relatively stable democracies that are Western-leaning. And so that was valuable. The Russians did not take advantage, I think, of the many efforts that everybody from the Clinton administration, through the Bush administration, through the Obama administration, and even the Trump administration, tried to have a hand of, of friendship to the Russians. And uh, increasingly with Vladimir Putin, he just he just bit it off. He, he, uh, he was not prepared to do that. You were part, obviously, a very important part of the administration that launched the um, American intervention in Afghanistan, and then, of course, the American intervention in Iraq. And I'm not going to spend a minute here relitigating the arguments or arguing about the pros and cons of that, but I think we can probably agree that for a lot of Americans, that experience has been, the experience of those two wars has been a sobering one, and they haven't been, at minimum, we can say that the clean victory and the clean enhancement, the clean achievement of American objectives that I'm sure you know, we all wanted at the time. And that's led, 
you know, Donald Trump perhaps reflected this. And a lot of conservatives now are really turning their back on that kind of American, that active American engagement, whether you call it nation building, neoconservative approach to the world or whatever. And there's now a very strong trend, various strands in the conservative, American conservatives. You know, we can call it isolationism if you like, but certainly of a much more modest strategic approach. There's no, we're not going to go out and, you know, try and change governments around the world. We're not going to try and rebuild nations, you know, impose America's imperium. It's time to focus on issues at home, robustly defend ourselves. Do you think that there is a new conservative geopolicy now that the United States should be following? Did Donald Trump get close to it? Are some of the uh, Republican, potential Republican candidates in 2024, uh, are they talking about that kind of thing? Are we looking at a much more restrained, much more modest, much more cautious approach to US engagement with the world? Well, let me just say, first of all, on Afghanistan and Iraq, um, I don't think uh, anybody ever expected a, quote, quick victory. And uh, on Iraq, look, at, at, at least Iraq is the place that is not uh, putting its own people in mass graves. And as to Afghanistan, uh, it's interesting. You know, our longest war was actually not Afghanistan. It's Korea. Uh, we are actually in an armistice in Korea, which has made the Korean Peninsula stable for more than 70 years. And I think that's the argument that got lost about Afghanistan. And that speaks then to what can American power do and what can American power not do. American power can't transform other countries. That's not the point. Uh, it can give to those who uh, want the opportunity, particularly after we have deposed a tyrant for security reasons. And let's remember, deposing the Taliban was not to make Afghanistan a democracy. It was to get rid of a security threat. And similarly with Saddam Hussein, although uh, I will be the first to admit that the intelligence there was, uh, was somewhat misleading. Now, when you think of it in those terms, uh, that our job is to, through support for those who wish to build more decent societies, ones that won't have child soldiers, ones that won't harbor terrorists, ones that won't uh, degrade women, that we believe that that is a balance of power that favors us, then America needs to have a role. I doubt very seriously that we will see again uh, a major military operation of that kind, but I hope that conservatives who do believe that America is an idea, that America stands for individual freedom and for liberty, will recognize that if that is only within our shores, uh, we are ceding the global environment to those who don't share those values, those who don't have that belief, and ultimately we will pay a price for it, as we did with our attempt to be isolationist after World War I and ending up back in a major war in Europe in World War II. And so I do think you're right. I think there is a reckoning, a very important conversation going on in the conservative movement. But if you honestly believe that human beings are best in conditions of liberty, then you'd better have a foreign policy that has that same set of views. We may disagree on uh, the means for achieving that. But if the rest of the world, uh, we decide that we're going to simply cede the rest of the world to those who don't share those views, especially the most powerful, like China and Russia, uh, we're going to rue the day. Just one very quick final question, Madam Secretary. It's a personal question, really, but also about the broader politics of our time in America today. You are 
very prominent uh, African-American woman. Uh, you now back at Hoover Institution. You're the president of Hoover Institution. The Hoover Institution is, you know, is the sort of conservative cuckoo in the fairly kind of, I think it's fair to say, sort of liberal liberal nest of Stanford University. And sometimes as some, uh, I'm sure you have perfectly good relations with everybody at Stanford, the rest of Stanford, but, but I know there are sometimes some question marks, specifically on the part of the people, many of the faculty of Stanford about Hoover. Can I ask you just more generally, again, given your own very, your, your own personal history, your own personal identity, and the climate that we're seeing in this country, particularly on university campuses, um, which I think it's fair to say is progressive, if you can call it that, very hostile to, uh, in many respects, to free speech. How concerned are you about the state of free speech in America, but particularly the state of free inquiry on the major university campuses, Stanford University, all these major universities, great universities with genuine global standing. And yet you hear so many cases of people whose views don't conform to the kind of liberal orthodoxy in these places being challenged, being silenced, being some cases actually being thrown out of some of these universities or attempts to get thrown out of some of these universities. How much of a problem do we have right now in terms of free speech and free inquiry at our major universities? Well, I do think we have a problem of, uh, let me call it ideological diversity in our universities. And uh, that means that when people exercise uh, the right to say things that are not popular or that are not a part of the orthodoxy, uh, they don't always find a very uh, hospitable environment. One of the things we do at, at the Hoover Institution is provide some of that ideological diversity, uh, actually, although uh, we are within ourselves. <laughs> do they like it at Stanford? Well, actually, you know, about two thirds of our senior fellows are actually jointly appointed at Stanford. And uh, we have a lot of, of uh, students who come to our midst. I think that it's really important if you're going to, as the Stanford president says, search for truth, you're going to have to do that in a way that people get to raise arguments that might be uncomfortable. And uh, we have gone to a place where uh, we talk so much about the comfort of one group or another that we forget that the purpose of education is to stretch your mind, to stretch the limits, to make you engage ideas that you may find hard. Uh, and to do it in a way that uh, makes you defend the views that you hold. I tell my students all the time, if you find yourself constantly in the company of people who say amen to everything you say, find other company. Just because uh, you think it, it's not necessarily so. And in a university more than any place, we have to hold to uh, that principle that we are going to present our arguments, we're going to argue civilly, and uh, we're going to try to come to conclusions. If we disagree, that's okay too, because that's how knowledge moves forward. Uh, I think we're making a little progress. Um, we have had a lot of calls around here at Stanford for opportunities for civil discourse. The Hoover Institution continues to bring people to campus uh, from a wide variety of views. And uh, I'm hopeful that our students, who after all are the ones that we most need to hold this principle for, that our students feel that they can develop intellectually without a repressive environment in which they feel that they can't say certain things uh, because it would not be tolerated. That would be the death of great university and, by the way, the death of democracy. And so uh, I think we're making progress. Yeah, very quickly, finally, do, do you think, though, that, and let's exclude Stanford, I'm not talking about Stanford or, or Hoover now, but do you think the leadership of major American universities has been robust enough in its defense of free speech? And so many of these places have seemed to have just bowed before the mob, really, on so many cases. Uh, I, I actually don't think that much of the leadership has been strong enough in this regard. You know, I would call out University of Chicago here, and a lot of people are now starting to follow uh, and look at these Chicago principles. You know, I had one colleague say that uh, the way that 
he thinks we should think about it, is that uh, if students want to come to a place where they're just going to uh, hear themselves echoed, maybe we should tell them to find another place because that's not our work. That's not our job. And I do like it when university presidents um, make it very clear that that's where they stand as well. Lisa Rice, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This was the first episode of Free Expression from the Wall Street Journal editorial page with me, Jerry Baker. This will be a weekly podcast. We hope you'll listen every week as we talk to some of the leading figures in politics, art, culture, history, science, technology about the major events facing the world today. And we hope also you'll listen to Potomac Watch the editorial page's uh, other podcast. That is now Monday to Friday. So make sure you listen to Potomac Watch five days a week for detailed analysis from Wall Street Journal editorial page writers on the politics of today. In the meantime, thanks for joining us. Look forward to talking to you again next week. For Toomey, nothing is ever quite finished. It can always be evolved. Introducing the latest evolution of Toomey, the aluminum backpack and briefcase from the 19-degree aluminum collection. Toomey reimagined these everyday essentials in aircraft-grade aluminum with contours sculpted at precise 19-degree angles. Carry the aluminum backpack and briefcase from Toomey to perfect journeys near or far. Shop Toomey's full 19-degree aluminum in stores and online at toomey.com.